0: If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Things above, that's the theme for this year's hymn sing at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. The Bridegroom soon will call us. Jerusalem the Golden, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, and a whole bunch more. You don't want to miss it. Making the Case is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org
1: recently there was a new resource introduced in the lutheran church missouri Synod. it's old and it's new very old all the way back to the time of the lutheran reformation luther's large catechism but with new annotations and contemporary applications. There was a bit of a kerfuffle online when it was released because some thought they found doctrinal errors in there. Others were objecting to some of the authors that were chosen to write the essays. Last week, we had Dr. Jordan Cooper, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, who had actually read the book himself all the way through, come on to give his review and express some of his concerns. And as promised, we wanted to bring him back to respond to your questions and your comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Dr. Jordan Cooper is Executive Director of Just and Sinner and President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Jordan, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, Todd. One of the questions that we've received from our listeners has to do with the fact that we interviewed you, not an LCMS pastor or theologian, to review this book. If you would, what's the relationship between the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and your church body, the AALC?
2: Yeah, sure. So just to give a kind of quick summary of of who we are as the AALC, we are the American Association of, of Lutheran Churches. Essentially, we are the remnants of what was the ALC, when the ELCA merger happened, uh, there were a number of churches that didn't want to go along with the merger because there, there was no strong stance on biblical inerrancy or confessional subscription. So uh, that, that was kind of the birth in the 1980s and 1987, the ALC formed. In 2007, we put together an agreement with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod for full altar and pulpit fellowship. We are, along with the LCMS, a, a part of the International Lutheran Council. So we we are in a altar pulpit fellowship arrangement with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which means that we have have declared that we agree on our doctrine. I know of pastors who serve both a LCMS and aALC congregation at the same time. We've done plenty of work with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We have a kind of official working relationship, even though we're not the same the same synod we have a different leadership structure essentially but we certainly see ourselves as as part of not just the same body of christ but also the same kind of confessional grouping of, of
1: churches so that full shallow just to put a fine point on it, that full yeah. fellowship means although that we're not the same denomination in structural terms you you would be welcome to preach in my pulpit or serve at my altar and vice versa
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Last year, I was serving uh, an interim position in a Missouri Synod congregation in upstate New York. And uh, those kinds of arrangements are very typical of churches that are in fellowship.
1: Yeah. For those who may not have heard our previous conversation where we reviewed Luther's Large Catechism with annotations and contemporary applications, what is this volume?
2: Yeah, so this volume is a new publication put out by the LCMS. Uh, It is a combination of the Large Catechism of Martin Luther. With a, a number of footnotes giving you know explanation of various elements of the large catechism. and then kind of the main chunk or the main most I guess discussed part of this volume is not so much the catechism itself or or the footnotes that it has, but is instead the essays attached. So included within each article of the large catechism are a couple different essays on each point by different pastors, theologians, and various others on these points. so it, it's meant to be a kind of, an adult catechetical volume it is seemingly somewhat for laity church workers somewhat seminarians maybe and pastors as well but it's certainly you know aimed at a an adult catechetical kind of audience
1: given that background on the large catechism volume how would you summarize our last conversation on this when we reviewed it
2: yeah, so I guess the, the summary of the last conversation, and you can listen to it if you haven't, you know, you can listen on the on-demand archives, I'm sure, to the specific points. But uh, generally, you know, I said that I think there are some some valid criticisms and concerns with the volume overall. It It is a solid, confessional, helpful volume that, that I do recommend people purchasing. But that's not to say, like any publication, that there aren't some criticisms. So we did discuss some of the issues of having uh, Stephen Paulson write an essay and some of his theological issues, and you know, there were some minor points where some language maybe is confusing or could be clarified, or things weren't said in the best way, or might point to certain political perspective that uh, we we might find questionable. But you know, I think the the major point that made last time was that those statements were were really pretty minimal. I mean, most of the criticism on those points was down to about you know, maybe five-ish sentences in a, in a really large volume. So, so I think that, yeah, while there may be some valid concerns or criticisms, it is pretty minimal in the large scope of this pretty large, hefty volume.
1: By the way, you can listen to last week's interview with Dr. Cooper on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Our first question or comment comes from the Issues Etc. comment line.
0: Hi, my name is Jennifer, and I'm from Plattsville, Wisconsin. I am calling in regards to the interview you did with Jordan Cooper. It was very good. I am not LCMS, but I am Wells. I just want to say I was shocked and horrified that the people who put this catechism together would ask people from the ELCA to write an essay for the catechism. I am very disappointed in you, the LCMS, for doing that. I love your show, and I'm looking forward to listening to when you bring Jordan back. Thank you.
1: All right, Dr. Cooper, what would be your response to her comment?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I understand the concern. I, I have, as I voiced last time, I certainly had concerns, particularly with Paulson and uh, his contribution to this volume. I will say, in terms of of the ELCA, Paulson is certainly considered one of the far more conservative voices within the ELCA. So, I think when you're thinking about Paulson, you have to differentiate him from someone like a, you know, Nadia Bulls Weber or or someone who is, you know, fully on board with, say, the you know, transgender kind of agenda and ideology that's that's being pushed there. So I just w- want to be fair to to Paulson on that point, and I don't want to categorize him unfairly. However, I, I still think with that being the case, there are a number of significant issues with with his theology and. You know, I think we could say that he is one of the more orthodox people within the ELCA, but the question is kind of, what's our standard for orthodoxy or confessionalism? And I I think that there are enough serious concerns in his writings that uh, we should probably have pause before kind of giving someone like him the go ahead in a volume like this.
1: Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary explanations is our topic. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues etc. Thanks to Lanny in Sydney in North Dakota, Rachel and Kurt in Iowa, and Emma in Illinois for registering today for the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Lutheran laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Attendance is limited to 500. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. A question from Neil on Paulson's inclusion in the Catechism volume next.
3: Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc.
0: Your Aunt Mabel's church banners are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell bottoms. But now
3: the colors have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to adcruesome.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct,
0: Christ-focused church banners We can customize size and color to meet your church's
1: requirements. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
3: The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend... Rest in Jesus as you hear his word and receive his gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstott.org. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. Cuchicago.edu Lutheran Talk The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates 713 855 2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc. 713 855 2681.
1: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, the 16th of February, we're responding to your questions and comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Jordan, Neil has this to say. He says, I agree with Dr. Cooper that the inclusion of Paulson in this volume is problematic, not only due to the issues raised regarding the essay in question, but also due to Paulson's other past heterodox written statements, his promotion of dualism, his describing God as opposing himself, the odd assertion that preaching is God's predestination— His referring to Christ's death as an accident, the list goes on. Why not just stick solely with proven confessional Lutheran theologians and authors? In the essay in question, the errors are plain. As addressed by Dr. Cooper, it is baffling that they were not spotted during the doctrinal review process. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, so regarding that point with Paulson, I think I... So this last week or so I went back through a number of Paulson's books and especially because you know there were some criticisms of the way that I represented Paulson in the last interview and and I certainly want to be fair to anybody that that I'm interacting with. I've read Paulson's book, Lutheran Theology, probably close to 10 times cover to cover. And I've I've wrestled with that thing over and over again, because sometimes I'm told I'm misrepresenting him and I want to make sure I'm as accurate as possible. But revisiting that volume, as I did this last week and revisiting his book, The Outlaw God, the first volume, and then the second volume of that series as well, those problems are really apparent throughout his writings. And and I think maybe, and we didn't even touch on this last time, but maybe the biggest problem theologically with Paulson is his continual assertion that God contradicts himself. And, you know, I know when he says things like Jesus committed his own personal sin on the cross, people say, well, that's just overstatement of Paulson. And and, and maybe it was an uncareful, bad statement somebody should have caught. But putting best construction on it, sure, that's the case. But I don't think you can do that with some of these other statements. I mean, he says it over and over and over again. I'm saying like multiple times in every chapter of volume one of The Outlaw God, he says things like, God contradicts himself. And the law and the gospel are God against God himself. At one point, he even says that Aristotle's law of non-contradiction is wrong. That what kind of all of us logically accept to be true, that one thing cannot be and also not a in the same sense at the same time. That's just kind of a a general rule of how we understand the world. But for Paulson, he goes beyond the traditional Lutheran approach that, yeah, there are paradoxes, there are mysteries, so that according to human logic, we can't figure out everything that's true about God. Of course not. But that doesn't mean that God is inherently contradictory. The fault is not in God. The fault is in our, you know, we just have fallible you know limited minds so we don't we don't totally understand everything but Paulson seems to go a step far beyond that in saying that god actually contradicts himself and again he says this numerous times and i say if paulson doesn't mean what he says then why does he say it over and over again and if someone continually says something and isn't going to be held accountable for what they say word for word multiple times, then there's a problem. Some of the criticism of some of the things I said last week as well about Paulson, a couple of things that people said, Paulson never believes this, you're mischaracterizing him. And then I would point to an exact quote that actually I was quoting at that point where Paulson says certain things. So I think that if you're really concerned and and think I'm misrepresenting Paulson, go ahead and and read his books and look for the things that I said, because I think it's it's pretty clear. so I think that the issues are just beyond what's in that essay. I think when you're talking about, you know, why did the you know, CDCR not find these issues in the essay? Well, I, I think the issues were pretty were pretty minimal, as I said, in the essay itself, if you don't know a lot of the background of what Paulson says elsewhere. A similar thing to what I would say about Gerhard Ferdi is when people read his book on being a theologian of the cross, they think, oh, this is a pretty good explanation of Luther. Until you read more Ferdi and then come back to that book and start to say, oh, wait, he used these terms, but he didn't mean them in the same way we do. So my concern about a lot of Paulson is that he uses a lot of kind of language of the confessions in some ways. But then when he explains at various points what he means by those terms, it doesn't appear at all to be the same as what our theologians within a confessional tradition have historically said. So, and and yes, that does get to the issue of, of election. And I will say, I went back because one of the criticisms th- that I heard was, well, Paulson's not really just saying that election is the act of the preacher. And and I went back through all of this, everything he says about election and, and that I could find in his books and articles. And the only times I, I can find, and there may be somewhere where I haven't found, but every time I could find him talking about an eternal election, as our Book of Concord does, Article 11 in the Formula of Concord, He's specifically saying that's not what we're talking about. The election is done by the preacher. So I say if if he doesn't mean that election is done by the preacher, then he shouldn't say election is done by the preacher. I think we need to prize clarity in our theological discourse rather than obfuscation.
1: You uh, have made this observation at some point in the last week, and I quote you, what Paulson needs is an editor with a deep grounding in historical theology. His future works would be three pages long because he merely repeats the same tropes over and over. The church needs a serious theologian to sit down with him in a public forum and have him explain. What did you mean by that?
2: Yeah, actually, I wasn't the one who said that. That was someone who was responding to something that I had said, but the sentiments are exactly mine. So, uh, I mean, this this is exactly how I would phrase it as well. So, yeah, I think when you say that his, his works would be about three pages long, it's something I found in his works is he very much repeats the same themes over and over and over and over again which I guess sometimes you have to hear things multiple times, but you'd think that if he discusses the same thing all the time over and over again, you'd have clarity. And I think what people end up with this is true with him as a writer. I mean, if you ask a, a number of people what Paulson believes about a number of things who have read his books, they come up with very different answers because his, his terminology and his words and his his theology just is very, very unclear, which again, I don't think is a is a mark of a great theologian. I would really like to see someone you know sit down with Paulson and have him answer these questions in a in a public forum. I think that probably would be beneficial. I'm often told somebody had a private conversation with Paulson, and this has happened to me numerous times with numerous individuals, such as people in his classes where they've confronted him about some of the statements that sound pretty bad. And in a one-on-one conversation, he'll say, well, that's not what I meant. But I think I can only judge him by his public writings, just like I could be judged by what I say in public. That, that's my responsibility as a, as a theologian. So if he's really... You know not saying what it sounds like he's saying, I think there should be some kind of public statement from him or public place where he can really be questioned and actually answer those things. And I would like to see him answer very specific quotes and have to actually define his terms because, you know, I know at some point he can sound as if he believes in a vicarious atonement, But then when he reads about his, what he says about the law, it, it, he's very clear that the atonement is outside of the law altogether. God does not operate according to the law. Jesus does not need to actively fulfill the law. He can talk about a vicarious atonement only in the sense that the law is basically a force that just accuses and destroys everyone regardless of whether they've broken it or not. And just as the law is this kind of powerful force that destroys everything, so it kills Jesus, and therefore now he brings a salvation that has nothing to do with the law at all. That, that's not a classical doctrine of vicarious atonement. And, and I, I can see how someone would maybe read it that way, but he's very clear in a number of statements that that's not the case. So I, I would love to see a public forum where he's challenged on these issues.
1: David raises a concern. He says, my concern with women writing any of the essays therein is that this volume is expressly used to instruct. So it is far too close to teaching, which is forbidden. I say this as a former hyper charismatic egalitarian. I just can't bear to see it in the Lutheran church.
2: Yeah, I mean I obviously I, I think that there is a, you know, a concern for the proper ordering of the church and in the office of, of the holy ministry. And certainly, you know, when you're talking about a hyper-charismatic movement, I think that there are there are more issues beyond just gender roles, and I think that there's also the broader question of what is the office of the holy ministry? And I think when you're looking at a lot of particularly American evangelical churches, and especially in a more charismatic bent, there isn't really a kind of set-apartness or sacredness of the office of the holy ministry so that kind of anyone can publicly teach you know, in a church service and administer the sacraments, uh, if they even call them sacraments <laughs> or have any kind of sacramental theology at all, which often they really don't. So I would say that the first thing I think we have to start with is what is the office of the holy ministry and who is qualified to hold that office? And then what are the roles of the one in the office of the holy ministry? And so we're talking largely about preaching and administering the sacraments. I mean, that that's the you know primary function of the called and ordained servant of the word. And then I think we have to ask more broadly then, okay, so if that's the role of the pastor, what's the role of the layperson? And I think we have to answer then a little more clearly, what's the role of the layperson in teaching theology? Because if we're talking about, you know, the first Timothy passage, for example, which is about you know, we're, we're reading a pastoral epistle where Paul's talking about the structure of the church, who the pastors are going to be, what the qualifications are. The first qualification appears to be it should be a man. And then he outlines what kind of man should be called to the office of the holy ministry. But we have to think through that question of, well, what's the role of the laity in teaching in general, I think? Before we just jump to the women question, so you then have to ask, well, what about, uh, you know, Gene Edward Vieth? You know, he's a lay person, can he teach? Because he's, he doesn't fit the qualifications of a pastor either in that he's not ordained and he's not called by a congregation. So I think the, the question is more complicated than just men and women. It's what is the role of laity? And then you have to ask, I think, if you're then differentiating, what's the role of male laity versus female laity? Then you have to ask, well, what kind of, of teaching is, is inappropriate? And you know, I, I mentioned last time that we have instances of things like women prophesying in, in Corinth. And Paul does not rebuke that practice at all. They're prophesying in a mic, in mixed company. There are men present. We know there are men present because the women are specifically told to wear head coverings to differentiate themselves from the men so that they have a sign of authority on their head, which is what Paul says. In other words, they are speaking in some kind of gathering. My read of that passage is that it's not the same as a divine service, but that's a kind of side issue. So that it does seem that there is a place for women to actually speak, and prophesying is teaching to some degree. I mean, that's kind of what prophesying means. So I, I think the question is maybe not so black and white. I don't mean to say this in a squishy, like, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know, kind of way. I, that's not what I'm saying. But we do need to be asking, what is the scripture allowing there? Because there is something that it does allow. And Paul does allow it in the context that there is a clear distinction between men and women. They still have the sign of authority on their head. So I think that looking at those texts and what seems to be okay in the Corinthian church, then there's the question of well, okay, how do we apply that in a broader context of teaching? Well, we have to differentiate between this kind of volume where you know you have women talking about you know issues of things like you know sexual purity, which is it's important to hear from women on that, right? I think. Is it bad for, say, a man to male pastor to read a book by a woman on sexual abuse to see how that affects women? Well, of course not. It's important we should care about those experiences. So I think we have to differentiate teaching into say, what are they teaching? How are they teaching? What's the context? And what's the intended audience? So is this the same, say, as, you know, having all of your seminary professors be women? Well, I mean, I think that clearly would seem to be a, vi- a violation because, you know, at this point, now you're moving, kind of putting the woman in the authority over the pastor because they're the ones training the pastors or women writing, you know, pastoral theology textbooks or something. So I think those things would be a problem. And these are the kinds, I mean, honestly, these are the kinds of issues that something like the CTCR is kind of put together to, to figure out what is the biblically appropriate role and how do we differentiate those things. And there's nothing in this particular volume in what the women wrote that really makes me concerned in that way.
1: Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're responding to your questions and comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Alex has a few thoughts about listening to Dr. Cooper next. (music) Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2.
0: The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministry sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life.
3: Lutheranism in the public square. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23.
1: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your questions and comments on Luther's Large Catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's Executive Director of Justin Center and President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Dr. Cooper, Alex has some thoughts about you. He says, I just wanted to express how much I do not like listening to Jordan Cooper. I recently listened to some of the episode on the New Large Catechism and couldn't get through it. I enjoyed listening to Stephen Paulson a great deal, so I'm definitely biased. But the truth is, I used to enjoy listening to Jordan Cooper, too, and stopped because I began to find him very pompous and arrogant in the worst ways, and this was before I learned just how much he doesn't seem to agree with Paulson, so it seems I have a type, and that type is not Jordan Cooper.
2: All right. (laughs) I mean, all right. That's fine. You don't have to like me, I guess. I certainly don't have any desire to come across as pompous and arrogant, but I think some of this is probably style. I think I do things very differently than, than Paulson. Uh, I do kind of tend to be academic in my own context and uh, I am very kind of philosophically oriented in a lot of things. And, and I have been more so in recent years because of our kind of cultural nosedive. I think it's important to get back to some of those basic issues. So some of the study of philosophy I know maybe comes across that way inherently. So maybe that's what it is. Paulson tends to be a bit crass in his language. He can use a lot of curse words in the way that he speaks sometimes too. So I guess our mode of speaking is different, but I guess I would just say, you know, if you want to listen to the criticisms, it's fine if you don't like me, you don't have to like me, but you do have to like the scripture and test what Paulson says by the words of scripture. So, uh, you know, even if you think I'm a bad guy or whatever, that's fine, but it doesn't justify, you know, the the issues in Paulson's theology.
1: What What is the appeal here of of Paulson and the way he he does his theology. I mean, I've observed that he kind of does theology by the vaguest means possible. Is that part of the appeal?
2: Yeah, I think it is. And it's something that that I think is probably the biggest problem in, in Paulson's theology. And it's not just Paulson. I mean, there are a number of thinkers who do this. There's just a vagueness to the language there is. And I don't know if it's the vagueness that is as attractive as it is the kind of shocking nature of a lot of his statements. So, you know, in the beginning of his Lutheran theology, for example, Paulson starts by saying like, Lutheranism is like the destruction of everything beautiful and good in the world. I mean, he, he has this like totally over bloated statement. And I think those kinds of quips that you get in Paulson, it's, it's almost like reading somebody who's very good at insulting people on Twitter. Not that Paulson's just insulting people, but, you know, you, you read somebody that's got really good zingers on Twitter and like they get really popular on Twitter because they're really good at the short form, like, gotcha kind of statements. And I think that the words of Paulson and the way that he writes is it feels like that in long form. <laughs> and he gives you these kind of little kind of zingers to throw out to people. And sometimes that can be just a very much a way to dismiss criticisms. And this is something I've seen repeatedly is the way that he speaks about the legal scheme, for example, in Lutheran theology or God working outside the law I've seen people repeat kind of quotes from his that he recites over and over again as kind of a way to dismiss more detailed argument. So like we'd say, well, okay, you're talking about, say, third use of the law. Well, how do you deal with this text in Paul, Romans 12 through 16? What's the rhetorical structure of Paul here? How does that relate to what he said about justification in chapters three and four? And and try to kind of lay out a, a systematic argument that deals with the text. When I've tried to do, say, that with relation to preaching and good works, in that context, the response I often get, that's the legal scheme, or you're being a theologian of glory, or it's kind of these little quips to, I think, dismiss real tough argumentation because I mean, sometimes theology is hard and making an argument is sometimes hard and, and sometimes you have to wrestle with things and argue in depth without just dismissing things. So I, I do tend to think that, that that's the appeal. I think he's he's a very good rhetorician and because he's a good rhetorician that makes him attractive, and then I think it's easy rhetoric to repeat. A, a friend of mine calls this sloganeering Lutheranism, where your Lutheranism is just a bunch of kind of slogans that you throw out to critique things that kind of gives you an excuse not to think too deeply.
1: So, uh, turning to the question of critical race theory that some saw, at least types and shadows, in the large catechism volume, C says. I'm surprised that Dr. Cooper is unfamiliar with the style used by many publications to incorporate CRT, for example, black uppercase versus white lowercase, and to dismiss such references as typos, and to infer that footnotes aren't read by most people and are unimportant to the work is insulting to both the essayist and the reader. This dismissal is just an example of why I didn't bother to listen to this interview in its entirety.
2: Sure. So let's uh, address the issue of the capitalization. Now, the the, the capitalization of and I I to my wife who is an editor and writer full time, so she she knows all of the debates about style guides and and all of this stuff. So, and then I did some looking into it myself. Now it looks like the the capitalization of B in black is something that is done by AP Associated Press by their their style guide. Now. I read some about the history of this in the AP style guide and I and I do have to say that I think that the capitalization of black was done recently it was also done recently with the word indigenous with an official statement that they would not be doing the same thing with white and it was because those things are cultures and titles of cultures rather than just you know statement about skin color and white could not be. Now looking into the history there and reading some of the press releases from AP on this, I have to concede to those who are saying this that 100%. That's an instance of CRT. I mean, I, I don't really know how you get away with saying that you capitalize the name of any race except white people. That that is, uh, I think, clearly a politically motivated decision. So I'll say, yeah, there, there's some validity to that in terms of where that comes from. But I do want to say, you know, when we're talking about the the actual essay itself. And the footnote, because again, it is only in a footnote, and I don't mean to like dismiss people by saying it's not as important because it's in a footnote. But at the same time, I write plenty of books, and the most important things I don't put in footnotes, <laughs> like uh, because that's just that's just the nature of a footnote. It doesn't mean it's not important at all, but it does mean it's not going to be the central part of your argument. So I don't mean to dismiss people reading footnotes to say nobody does or anything, but that's kind of generally the way footnotes work. There's a reason why you don't put them in the main text, but. I think looking at the CPHS style guide, it's very clear that they don't follow AP guidelines. So it is odd that the AP style was was followed here. Now, because it's a one-time thing, I would have to ask you know, the writer of the essay and the editor. It could be that the person they had copy editing the book, and I don't know who the copy editor was, but I know copy editors miss things, or it could have been a copy editor that did things in AP style in the past and did that because they were used to working in AP style. I don't know, (laughs) or it could be that the original essay was written in AP style and then the copy editor changed the style and missed that point. I don't want to fill in the gaps of information that, that I don't have, and I don't necessarily think that it should be the automatic assumption that there was a hidden agenda to bring CRT in through the capitalization of that particular word. Though, there are questions to be asked about that, I think, in, in general, and it certainly could be asked of the author and the editor where that came from. I don't
1: know. Two follow-ups to that, Dr. Cooper. In the essay in question, to which that footnote was attached, was black consistently used in uppercase and white in lowercase, or was it only in the footnote?
2: From what I recall reading the essay, it was only in that one footnote.
1: The other follow-up is, and this is it comes from an observation in a conversation I had with a fellow pastor... And he th- pointed out something that I think is a, is a valid concern, and that is perhaps pastors and academics are a little out of touch with how the average layperson is sensitized from the use of CRT in their workplace and elsewhere. Two terms that have become associated with critical race theory and anti-racism, they're more sensitive to these things than the average pastor, who doesn't run into CRT in his work day, or the academic. What are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, and I've heard this criticism before, and this is something I encountered a lot, which was I'm a theologian in the ivory tower or whatever. I, I don't know. The the implication is like I don't interact with anybody outside. Of, that's not true. I'm very involved in my in my congregation, and I do my in-person ministry, because a lot of us, the things I do are you know, writing and teaching courses, but in terms of my practical ministry, most of it is involved with with college students. And let me tell you, there's nobody dealing with CRT more than college students. I see it constantly. I I mean I live in a very it's the second most liberal town in New York State, apart from New York City. So like I get it, CRT is everywhere. It drives me insane. And I feel like I'm having these conversations about this stuff constantly. I've had to deal with white students feeling inadequate because they're white and I see this all over the place and it's a it's a hot mess. And I know people that have been dismissed from their jobs and people that have to be very quiet about what they believe about sexuality issues and all sorts of other things. So I don't know how the academy is seeing this less. I mean, this stuff starts in the academy, so I feel like it's pushed there more than anywhere else. So this is why I'm saying, you know, last time I said, I do want to validate the fears of these things. And it's very real, okay? And it, it is very real. And it's a very real problem. And it's a problem that we need to be facing as a church. But I also do think that there is the danger of overreaction. And I do think there is the danger of seeing it everywhere. And to some extent, it's understandable because you're always on guard. And when you're always on guard against serious cultural issues, you are going to start to see signs of it everywhere. And I think that is something that's just kind of a natural human thing. So my caution would just be not to overreact and stop and think, not to put the, the worst construction on it because you've had an experience with somebody who really is, or a company or whatever, who's pushing this in a way that's very damaging. To Stop and say, is that really what they meant? And I think that's that's just the nature of kind of putting best construction and being, and being gracious. Now I will say though, uh, that I did look in, in that particular article, I spent a little bit of time looking at some of his other writings because people had pointed me to those other writings. And I did see some things that were concerning. Well, I saw in that, that essay, one capitalization to me was, was a pretty minimal issue that could have been explained in a bunch of different ways. But I will say that when I did explore some of his other things that he had written, there did seem to be some, some ideas of kind of white guilt, the notion that you can kind of divide people up into groups and speak of sin in terms of group identity, which I think has serious theological problems and just practical problems too so looking more into the author you know I, I do think that there are some some issues there as well i don't think that they came out particularly in the essay unless you are looking really hard when i read through it i didn't even notice when i read the footnote the difference i think my eyes just skipped over it. and to be honest i think a lot of people probably would as well
1: Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. We got a tweet from a listener on self defense and the Second Amendment coming up next. You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS president Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordeleoni. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385.
0: One of the most difficult decisions that a spouse has to make is the decision to put their beloved husband or wife into a long-term care facility as a result of mental illness. In the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Michael Casting tells the story of how he cared for his wife during her struggle with Alzheimer's and how he came to grips with this decision. To find out more, you can read his article in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
3: Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: luther academy promotes confessional lutheran theology and research through conferences scholarly exchanges and publications like logia the confessional lutheran dogmatic series and luther digest find out more about the worldwide mission outreach of luther academy at lutheracademy.com serving lutheran pastors and lay people to the ends of the earth lutheracademy.com. We're responding to your questions and comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Here's a tweet uh, from a listener. Will you be addressing what a scandal it is that Bierman, that is Dr. Joel Bierman, took a sideswipe, a hit and run at our right to self-defense in an essay bound to our confessional documents, or that Luther himself could be quoted against Spearman's position, or will you be addressing Pastor David Ramirez's rebuttal that the Second Amendment is not a product of the Enlightenment so much as English common law based on biblical principles?
2: Yeah, I mean that's kind of a big that's a that's a big question because there are a lot of there are a lot of questions and a lot of assumptions in within that one question. In terms of you know the last part of it, it doesn't come from the Enlightenment; it comes from English common law. This is kind of a continual debate in in political. Uh, history and political scholars dealing with you know 18th century America because the principles that show up in the Constitution do seem to be a bit of a combination of some Enlightenment liberalism as well as aspects of English common law. But I also am not you know uh, th- that's not my area of expertise either, so I, I don't know how much I, I want to comment on that. I mean, I think I think my only response, you know, again, it's a very small part of Bierman's article. It's like a sentence. I would ask him, you know? I mean maybe maybe you should have him on the program to talk about it. I think that's probably the best the best way to go instead of me answering for him on that point because I I think he could probably answer his work better than I could.
1: Nathan says, "Why are woke terminology and authors who have sympathy for Black Lives Matter like John Nuñez featured in this document? I'm disgusted and embarrassed to have graduated from our own Senate University." Who has supported these ideas to the point of firing a faithful pastor and teacher this woke stuff is real and dangerous to our synod why is it all over the essays in a publication so closely tied with our lutheran confessions when i was commissioned to serve in my congregation i subscribed to the lutheran confessions now my synod is responsible for publishing this new large catechism in a volume containing essays by authors and containing terminology in our modern day context that reeks of liberal leftist and anti-biblical false teaching how can I make my voice heard to the synod leadership so that this publication is pulled until the false teaching and false teachers are removed from the document? That's Nathan. What's your response to him?
2: I mean, that's a pretty harsh comment, <laughs> and, and that's a harsh comment toward Pastor Nunez as well as the stances of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the, the CTCR more than it is comment on me per se. But you know, I can't answer for I haven't heard anything, everything that Nunez, Pastor Nunez, has ever said. I have not read a bunch of things that he has said just speaking from my experience of what I, i read a lot of leftist books i do that on purpose because i'm trying to understand where they're coming from and i'm trying to get to the intellectual roots of where we've kind of gone off the rails so i have kind of alarm bells going off when i see some of this but at least in the essay itself i didn't see strong leftist kind of terminology i didn't see anything leaning toward critical theory in general whether the kind of older frankfurt critical theory or critical race theory you know i mean he he did he did mention in the essay one example of something that would harm a neighbor is just a very common phenomena which is very real where there are poor communities where especially in cities so think of something like new york city where there are wealthier people that move into that area of the city and then drive up the housing prices and when they do that, the people who have lived there for a long time and have their culture and home there are driven out because they can't afford it. And I mean, I, I don't see an issue with that because that's a reality that happens. You know, I think he's given an example, uh, probably something he's encountered in his in his own experience. And he does mention it being minorities, but also statistically, it's not that that never happens with white communities or white individuals. It certainly does. But statistically, there are just far higher rates of that happening to minorities. And you know, as, as one who's lived and seen some of those areas where that kind of thing happens, it does tend to be more upper class white liberals who move into poorer minority communities and, and do that. So that's just a t- statistical reality. So is he, I don't know, does that push a broader narrative that he's saying that all minorities are oppressed by all white people or, or that he's pushing something beyond that? I, I think that it is reading concerns from other things into that example, because I don't see anything just logically, statistically, historically wrong with the example. It, it just seems to be an apparent truth. So are there other things that, that Pastor Nunez has said that people are seeing in light of that? I don't know. I, I'm not an expert on all of his his writing, but at least in the essay itself, I, I did not see strong leftist kind of terminology at all.
1: David says, though the specific sentence of certain essays may not be advocating critical theory or wokeism, are there essays that clearly denounce the heresies found in critical theory? I ask this because if this is a large catechism that includes essays that deal with contemporary applications, it would only make sense and would even be necessary that this be done after all our confessions do so well. We are a church that states both theses and antitheses. Such an approach protects true doctrine.
2: Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, there are at least two essays that do mention it and, and mentions the issues with it. There is not a separate essay on the question, but I know Manoush's article in the beginning deals with this. And I, I can't recall what the other article was, but there was, and I, I mentioned the name of it last time, I believe. But there were at least two articles that did deal with that issue, at least some.
1: We have Paul in Wisconsin he says, first for Pastor Wilkin, in the last week's response to listener email and the issues, et cetera, comment line on the 9th of February, in response to the very first comment regarding Cooper's interview, you called those concerned over the large catechism, Dr. Cooper's opponents, whom he was responding against. So was the interview with Dr. Cooper a review of Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications, or was the interview really a review, or critique of the people with concerns over the document, but well, since he asks me the question, I'll give you a chance to follow up, Jordan. If you would, the interview was a review of Luther's Large Catechism, but we can't have that interview outside the controversy. We wouldn't even, probably wouldn't even have had the interview apart from the controversy that was occasioned by those who were criticizing it publicly. So I would say primarily a review of the book, and secondarily an opportunity to respond to some of the criticisms or to chime in with some of the criticisms or introduce criticisms of our own. What are your thoughts there, Jordan?
2: Yeah, so I certainly, you know, I, I was asked to do this, not in response to any particular person. <laughs> I was asked to do this just as a review of the catechism. And I just started reading it because there was controversy. And, you know, personally, I, I never, I never want to just go after individuals because I don't like them or I don't like what they said. I mean, that that's kind of irrelevant. You know, even Paulson, I'm not when when I criticize his writings and his theology, I'm not trying to criticize his person. He could be a, I've never met him. He could be a, he's probably a wonderful guy. I don't know. But that's not the point, right? it's it, it's the ideas is is really what matters. And it's the question of are the ideas orthodox in this book or are they not orthodox? I mean, that's the main question. But I will say this when you you do look at the sources of people who are who are asking a lot of questions, there are numerous people asking questions. Some of them, I think, are very, Valid questions and concerns from people who, who have heard things or read things that they feel like are concerning and you know totally deserve to be responded to. And by that, I'm not talking about those people who just kind of jumped to the absolute worst possible conclusion, but there are some valid concerns. But there is another group of, of individuals, and, and I'm not going to talk about who any of the individuals are, but some of the initial concerns that were raised about the supposed critical race theory in the volume, whereby individuals who have also made statements in other places saying that racism is not sinful, <laughs> also on Twitter and other social media platforms, and saying that people who are not part of white culture are not actual Americans. I mean, stuff that, that is straight white nationalism. So I don't think you can dismiss that from the criticisms. Because those individuals were the people that the criticisms initially came from. So when you're looking at people saying, you know, racism is not a sin, if the book says racism is a sin, that's not critical race theory. That's biblical. That is consistent with statements that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has put out for years. That is racism is a sin. And I have no apologies for that. So to say that racism is a sin is not CRT. And and I think probably the problem with CRT is that it has the same problem that the white nationalists do, because you see these kind of two movements that I think feed off of each other. I think they're two sides of the same thing, which is this kind of identitarian, we define people by just define everybody by their race and not who they are as an individual, where you have the white nationalists doing this and you have the critical race theorists doing this. They're just doing it in different directions, but the fundamental assumptions end up being pretty much the same. So. Let me say this. The majority of those who are concerned are not in that group Okay, of those who are maybe white nationalists or or dissident, right? Whatever the heck these people want to call themselves. So I think the majority of the critics aren't. However, from what I have seen, those are the origins of the criticisms. So I don't think that you can just divorce it from this entire controversy because like it or not, there are people who, some of them Holocaust deniers, some of them have some serious uh, things that are serious concerns that I think we should be concerned about who who started to raise these issues. So what I don't want us to do is just, the worst thing we can do is say that the enemy is just CRT and not also see unbiblical notions in other areas. I mean, our center is scripture and and there are movements from all around us from all different directions trying to take aim at what is true and biblical and confessional and we need to be careful to defend the church according to the word of god from all of those attacks
1: a second question from paul in wisconsin we are admonished by saint paul in first corinthians 5 6 do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump considering that many of the complaints lodged at the truly problematic essays within this volume come either in the introduction as the authors are laying the groundwork for what they will be arguing in the essay or in their conclusions, sometimes even the last line. As the authors are summarizing their arguments, do you believe these to be cherry picked out of context or are they really major themes driving what the author is arguing for?
2: I don't see them as major themes. And you know, maybe for one or two authors, they they are. I mean, I can't you know, I'm not gonna psychoanalyze them and say what I think their motives are. Uh, but but I don't get that idea in in the essays themselves. And obviously that's biblical, right? A little leaven leavens a whole lot. That that's a biblical statement, so I certainly am not going to disagree with with what's in scripture. But I will say that any theological text that is written, you know, I mean, apart from scripture, it's gonna have some kind of issue somewhere, even if it's minor. And I go back and revisit books that I wrote, you know, 10 years ago and say, yeah, I don't think I should have said that that way. That could totally be misconstrued. I should have said this." You know, I do that to myself because I am flawed and all of us are. So any theological publication, I mean, you can't I don't believe everything Luther says. There are things that Luther says that aren't great. You know, and I would say that about literally any theologian alive, you know, apart from the authors of Holy Scripture when they were writing Holy Scripture. So I just don't know that you can apply that kind of standard to say, well, if there are a few bad sentences in a giant book, if that's the standard, I don't know that I should be writing theology books. Because what if I use one sentence and (laughs) what if I have, uh, you know, write a book of 100,000 words? What if I write a sentence of 10 words that says something that might be construed as bad. Does that mean that my whole book should be thrown out? I mean, I I just don't think we read things this way. We wouldn't read, you know, we don't read Augustine this way. We don't read Luther this way. We don't read even our most trusted theological sources this way, because we're all fallible people and can make mistakes. So even if, you know, there are a few things that are, there are errors in the text, does that mean that the whole thing is worthless? I, I just think that is a valid way to approach any text.
1: Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest for responding to your questions and comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Ryan has a question on this book and the inclusion of ELCA theologians next. Several issues, et cetera, regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. This week on The Word of the
0: Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with Lamps Burning, Faithful Manager, Divided, Repent or Perish, and the Barren Fig Tree. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at the or your favorite podcast provider.
3: Confessional Lutherans. We've got your back.
1: You're listening to Issues Etc. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and lay people worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest as we respond to your questions and comments about Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Here is a comment from Ryan, Dr. Cooper. It says, I appreciate hearing Dr. Cooper's more balanced take on the issue of the annotated large catechism. I think Pastor Hans Feeney made a good point in a recent tweet that read, quote, a lesson for zealous young men, when you overstate your case, your legitimate points will get swept away with less legitimate ones. Would have been good to have focused on discussions like having ELCA theologians write for the project, alas, end quote. Then Ryan picks up, he says, "Well, I still have issues with this work, I think having it published will be better long-term, both for bringing to light some of the legitimate issues with certain authors and less than useful use of language and the benefit for the work itself in annotation and less problematic articles. What are your thoughts there, Jordan?
2: Yeah. So I think, and I know Pastor Feeney has said a number of things on Twitter about the volume, and, and I would pretty much echo all of his sentiments because I think he's very much seems on the same kind of page as myself on these issues with this volume. And I think his comments throughout have been, have been I think, very, very insightful. So, yeah, I think this is something that, that happens when you overreact and you just blow up about something. Nobody's going to listen to you because you're going to look like just an angry reactionary. And I've seen people criticize the catechism that immediately jumped to calling people in the CTCR demons, or even President Harrison a demon, or evil, wicked, and unbeliever. I mean, crazy, just totally wild, unfounded accusations that are just completely inappropriate and frankly sinful. And I was glad that President Harrison used the language of sin for how these, these people addressed these issues. They were completely sinful in the way that people were treated and people were speaking about these issues. There is an appropriate way to bring about concerns that is not demonizing pastors and people who have faithfully worked on things. You don't start with the worst possible assumption and assuming things to be evil and demonic. And it's true, when you do that, now you are going to just dismiss all of the criticisms. Because if you have people from one extreme condemning someone of the other extreme, and someone who is just a kind of a sensible, rational person trying to work through things, and they hear what you're saying and they see how kind of extreme your language and position is, they're just going to not listen to you. So, yeah, there are serious issues. And I've raised some of my concerns, and plenty of people do. And that's, you should be free to raise concerns. I think even, you know, I don't think this is just pastors. It's fine for lay people to ask questions and to say why did you do this or i'm concerned maybe about this or that but there's a way to do that that is that is appropriate and there is a way to do that that is just insulting and sinful and is ultimately not going to bear any fruit
1: john in michigan says second edition minus paulson clean up some of the sloppy imprecise theological terms talk to your friends let's make this happen
2: (laughs) yeah no it sounds great i mean i think for the most part as i said i think it's a it's a helpful volume i think there, there are some issues you know and some people are like why didn't they just pull this and do a second edition right away? Well, logistically you get a bunch of copies of a book printed. So it would be a pretty significant issue to just pull everything and start over. And I don't and yeah, if there was serious heresy, okay, then you you do that, but I don't see this to that level in, in any way. So yeah, a second edition. I mean, this is what what you do with with books, right? If there are questions and no, the same thing happened with the reader's edition uh, of the Book of Concord. It, it improved. There were some things that were that were fixed, and that's kind of the proper way to move forward is, ah, eh, you see things that could be clarified, things that could be better. That's the good thing about second and third editions of books is you, you have the opportunity to do that.
1: Tom has this comment. Thank you for a wonderful interview with Dr. Cooper regarding the controversy surrounding the release of Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations by Concordia Publishing House. In an interview, one LCMS pastor described the controversy as an explosion that began on Lutheran Twitterverse. These kinds of explosions are the bread and butter of how social media platforms work and make huge amounts of money. Ex-Facebook executive, Sean Parker, put it this way, quote, the thought process of building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible and that means we sort of need to give you a little dopamine hit because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post, and that's going to get you to contribute more content. It's a social validation feedback loop exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. End quote. That's insightful in and of itself. The social media explosions are akin to bringing up other addictive behavior. It's easily documented that for those participating, relatively minor things take on huge, even existential significance friends who disagree become lifelong enemies who are opening a path to destruction obviously this is not a way of sound reasoned theology lutheran pastors are not immune from this addictive behavior by our participation in these explosions we are encouraging jesus precious sheep to do something we know is dangerous to their mental health it is way past time for us to have a serious discussion about the pastoral use of social media is it even possible to use it in a salutary way when the platform itself is designed to be addictive this discussion needs to start in seminary i would be interested in dr cooper's response if you have time
2: yeah that is a fantastic question i mean that that is a very uh, insightful and and really important and it's something that i certainly have Put a lot of consideration into as somebody who wastes way too much time on social media. Those are serious questions. And I think it's unfortunate that this kind of thing had to happen for people to start to really think about these things. But I, the good thing about a kind of blow up like this and the way that it was done is that it is going to force the church to start to kind of have to reckon with the reality that we have. I think we as a human species haven't known what to do with social media. It, it's something that rewires our brains, it, it is that kind of dopamine hit. It, it affects us in really really significant ways mentally and and emotionally and in terms of our attention span and we really i mean these things have not been around long enough for us to know the significant effects of this on our brains or on the church especially so this absolutely is something that we need to be talking about as as a seminary president i'm thinking through this a lot and to be clear i do monitor the students behaviors on social media, because I think that that matters. And those things will be taken into consideration when they go through our clergy commission, if they are acting nasty on social media. But it is true that your behavior, for whatever reason, people seem to think that their behavior on social media often doesn't. It's kind of not real life. Like You feel like you have an excuse because you're not seeing a person as a human being, because you're not seeing their face. You're just seeing them as a picture on a screen or an idea that you don't like. So it does kind of foster a nastiness toward people that you just don't have in real life conversations. You know, if a pastor does this or a seminarian, you know, I've seen instances of, I know instances of seminarians who are removed from seminary for behavior on social media. And I think it is something that we need to be taking into account as we are training pastors and as we are talking about how is it that you as a minister of the word present yourself online? And then I think there is the broader question of anonymity online. Is anonymity online okay or is it not? Because it does it kind of give people cover from any kind of social consequence. You know, I think God kind of placed social consequences and shame into our cultures and world for a good reason. People can be shamed for wrong reasons, but sometimes that's that's part of the law's curb that keeps us in check. When you're you're anonymous, you have no accountability because there are no consequences. And I don't think that's healthy for us. I mean, you, you are, uh, at that point, you're removing one of the the roles, the three uses of the law there as curb. You're getting rid of the curb, so you can just do whatever you want without consequence. And I, I don't claim to have all of the answers, but I do think that this points us, this whole situation does point us to the need to really think through theologically, practically, And psychologically, how these things affect us and kind of what our guidance should be toward pastors and and students and laity as well.
1: Finally, Michael in Kansas says, a great interview on the topic was great to hear from someone who actually read the book. Based on the criticism and and the ever-evolving nature of things, what is the realistic shelf life of this particular book? The McCain Book of Concord, referring there to Pastor Paul McCain, its general editor, has shown to have staying power. But will this book fade from relevance in five to 10 years?
2: Yeah, I think the McCain Book of Concord is different because it is the Book of Concord and historical notes. So it's a little different. It's not just a bunch of newer essays that are more for contemporary application. So just by the nature of the Book of Concord as a historical document and the text really being explanatory history rather than contemporary application. I think by the nature of the volume, it is something that will have a lengthier staying power. But I will say this, you know, the large catechism volume, as, as I look through it, I think most of the essays are broadly applicable enough that, that they will be relevant for a long time. But this is also the kind of thing that you actually can have second, third edition of as the situation in the world changes. You may want to add additional essays or change some things. And I think that this kind of volume would be more amenable to kind of changes just because of the nature of the contemporary application. I mean, our world does change so fast at this point, it seems like our challenges are different one year to the next. <laughs> so I get that. But I do think that the majority of even the contemporary application there is there is pretty applicable beyond place and time as well.
1: Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Just and Sinner, and he's president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. You'll find a link to Just and Sinner at IssuesETC.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Cooper, thank you very much. Thank you. Friday on Issues Etc. we'll discuss mental illness in the Lutheran congregation with Dr. Stephen Saunders. We'll get a review of the movie Living from Pastor Ted Geese and we'll respond to your email, talkback at issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. comment line 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
3: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
0: I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org unityesl.org Today with the help of the Holy Spirit I
2: say yes to God in his ways